Luke chapter 11, beginning verse 14, we'll finish the entire chapter tonight, Lord willing. Um, We left off as Jesus taught his disciples to pray to their heavenly Father. Not a prayer to be repeated, but rather a model prayer, teaching a personal relationship with uh, the Father in heaven, which was totally unknown to the Jew. Um, he was known as the father of the nation, but not as individuals. The fact that he's holy, his kingdom, and his will is the priority, and then the access we have for our physical needs, forgiveness, and direction away from evil. Jesus then illustrated the willingness of God to answer prayer by the parable of the friend coming at midnight asking for bread. The parable teaches a contrast. God does not need to be pestered like this man. We have access to God, we ask, and he is more than willing to give to us our request. Then Jesus again illustrated the assurance of God answering our prayers by the second parable of um, fatherhood. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Shall your heavenly Father give to you the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That second parable teaches a comparison, not a contrast. It's from the lesser to the greater. God is more loving than any earthly father. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more there's the comparison, not a contrast. So... Parables either compare or contrast. Sadly, often we can miss the punchline and, and teach a comparison when it's um, a contrast or a contrast when it's a comparison. And we destroy the whole message of the intent of that parable. So the first is a contrast. The second is comparison. Now is verse 14. Jesus um, is accused of casting out spirits. By Beelzebub from 14 to 28. Uh, verse 14 says, And it was, uh, he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. Jesus again is in the process of casting out demons, and, he, and this person was made mute by the demon. Matthew twelve twenty two says he was blind and deaf also. Now to conclude that all physical maladies are attributed to demons is absolutely wrong. For us to say that certain maladies were attributed to demons when they're recorded and indicated, that's biblically accurate. Okay? So it doesn't mean because you are deaf and dumb or blind and necessarily you got a demon in you, okay? But we can say for certain for those that are set to be because Jesus allows them to be recorded that way. The expulsion of the demon restores the speech of the individual. Jesus constantly was casting out demons. We've seen this from chapter 433, 35, 733, 829, 36, 942. Here we are again. The multitudes marvel, notice, they wondered in, a, in admiration um, the power of God. Oh, how demons just cried out. Everybody was wondering who Jesus was. Demons said, hey, what are you doing, Jesus? Our time's not yet come. What are you doing here? <laughs> Son of God. 
They knew who he was. In verse 15 down to 23, the Jews blaspheme now um, the Holy Spirit, literally. In 15 and 16, the response to the demon expulsion is given to us. It says that, but when some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, others testing him sought him for a sign from heaven. And so they're relating the casting out of, of uh, the demon as being done by the um, prince of Beelzebub here. Um, these are the Pharisees and the scribes that are indicated in Matthew twelve twenty four and Mark three twenty two. Um, Jesus joins the sin of blasphemy to this, which is ongoing rejection of Jesus Christ by the witness of the Holy Spirit till a person crosses that line of repentance that God gives a person up. Now, many teach that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit cannot be committed in the age of grace. But, Jesus in Matthew 12.32 says, This thing will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. So Jesus says it can be committed in this age, the age of grace, in the age to come is the millennial kingdom. Okay? So I'll take the commentary of Jesus over people say that it can't be committed. Now, the best way to describe blasphemy is if you think you have committed it, you have not. In other words, if you're concerned that you might, it means that you're still open to God and God is not through with you. If you committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you would not be in church. You would not be concerned about God. You would not be concerned about your salvation. You would not be concerned about evil or good. You would not be concerned about you. You're done. That's the best way to describe it. So as long as it bothers you, you're in good territory. <laughs> That's the best way to define it. Okay, But certainly it can be committed by the words of Jesus. This age and the world or the age to come. Beelzebub means the Lord of the Flies. He was the God of Ekron, the Philistines in 2 Kings 1-2. Um, and the Jews used it as uh, a euphemism for Satan, the prince of darkness. Very, very clear. Now, the others, notice in verse 16, were testing Jesus by asking him for a sign from heaven. And uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1-22 that the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. Um, they always want a miraculous sign. Uh, people always um, that are chasing the Holy Spirit from tent meeting to tent meeting or from church to church when they hear the uh, different movements like the Toronto blessing that I call the Tonto blessing and um, Pepsi-Cola and, and they're, they're just everywhere. You know, all these things that are non-biblical, they're based on emotionalism, manipulation of the masses and sometimes even demonic at times. You have to be careful. Now, in 17 to 18, we get the response of Jesus to the accusation. But he, knowing their thoughts, that's very key. Jesus knew everything. No one had to tell him anything. He said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And a house divided against a house falls. 
So very clearly here, Jesus being able to read their thoughts rebukes their bad theology that he was casting out demons by the prince of Beelzebub. Every kingdom is simple against itself. If it fights, it is brought to desolation. It defeats itself. It's divided. Now, our president knows this principle. So he divides people to destroy. Labor against union. Employer against employee. Banks against people. Black against white. It's real simple. And when you put people at odds, you divide them and you conquer them. It's a very simple principle. And those that understand it and are masters of it bring great destruction. God help them. Verse 18. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. So Jesus points out the faulty logic. If Satan also is divided against himself, how can they declare that his kingdom stand? How can it stand? It cannot. Satan would be destroying his very kingdom. And notice, because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. So Jesus quotes their very words. I'm only giving you back your own words. Think of what you're saying. That's bad theology. Just as Christians sometimes teach that Christians can be demon-possessed. Jesus says, and Paul says, that light and darkness cannot occupy the same vessel. And Christians that are out trying to cast out demons from Christians, they're a contradiction to Scripture. Ministries that call themselves deliverance ministries embrace this theology. It's a bad theology. It's a tontos theology. It doesn't fit. Light and darkness do not occupy the same vessel. Real simple. Now, in 18 to 20, notice the concluding truth of casting out demons. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out the demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now, remember that there were exorcists of the sons of Sceva, one of the high priests in Acts 19, 14 through 16, that were casting out demons. And the demon says, well, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who are you? And they jumped on him and tore him all up and they ran naked. Demon activity is as real as you and I. Make no mistake of this. Our nation has been open to the occult. It used to fear it. Now it embraces it as part of power and new age. And a source for good. And so the worldview of America regarding the occult and demonic things is much friendlier now than ever before in our past history. 
And so you've got a rise in the occult, and, and it's embraced by police departments, by certainly Hollywood. Um, we've got more movies about vampires and about all this other stuff. Now, we've always had stuff like that, but there's, you look at the movies that come out, they deal with the occult and the occult more than ever before. More than ever before. And so, once again here, Jesus um, says that their very sons would be their judges about the wrong accusation and theology about Jesus. In 20, he says, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here's where he nails them. He states clearly that he was cast out demons by the power of God. The power and authority is stated figuratively, the finger of God. Matthew twelve twenty eight says, the spirit of God. You remember the finger of God in Exodus eight nineteen. The magicians of Egypt says, surely this is the finger of God. Let's let the Hebrews go. <laughs> he will destroy Egypt. The finger of God is declared also in Exodus 31, 18 and Deuteronomy 9, 10. When God wrote in the tablets of the Ten Commandments with the finger of God. You remember Jesus? He knelt down and he wrote on the ground. <laughs> the very sins of those people there. Interesting. The kingdom of God surely had come upon them, verse 20 says. Literally did already reach to you, the error is tense. Jesus said the kingdom of God's in the midst of you. It's come upon you. The kingdom of God is present and it's yet to come in its full manifestation. It's like an eclipse. Here's the earth, here's the kingdom of God. At the coming of Jesus, it made contact. And since he left, it's been traveling, and it's like an eclipse. We're getting closer and closer. And when he comes here in the rapture, and we come back to set the kingdom, the kingdom will be totally eclipsed. It will have arrived in its fullest form as God sets up the kingdom. So the kingdom is present and yet to come. The kingdom is in the midst of you, inside of you, Jesus said. As the people and the children of God. And so in 21 down to 23. Now you have the illustration that God is more powerful than Satan. All of this theme runs together. In the gospel of Luke. Don't miss it. Sometimes you say well how is this joined to this? It's all about this. It's, it's connected with the power of God opposing Satan. In 21 it says and when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace. His goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So, in verse 21, the principle of strength for its protection and preservation is to be armed. Now he's dealing with Satan and God through this illustration. But the principle is very, very simple. 
Those who are mamby-pamby pacifists, who reject war, do not live in reality. I hate war. My son went to war. He almost died. His friend Seamus was killed in 205. I went to his funeral of Special Lives Recon in Iraq. But I'm a realist. This man, this world is evil and they're evil men. And if you're not strong and you show yourself weak, there will be a bigger bully on the block to try to knock your door down. And if you don't think so, you're smoking crack. In this evil world, it's good to be aware of the evil and to understand what has to be done with evil. You can't ignore it. You can't convince it to be good. It's impossible. Our founders and our nation understood this principle. That's why the First and the Second Amendment are Twinkies and Cupcakes. They go together. Freedom of speech. Bearing arms. They go together. When a thief knows that I can bear a gun in my house, he's going to think twice before he tries to break in. He has to consider that he might lose his life. That's a great preventative from him coming. When a nation knows that you're stronger than it, and it's evil, it keeps its claws in its paws. It's just that simple. And any Christian or atheist or politician who thinks that he's going to make this world a better place because he is just the orator of the world is either one of two things, crazy or plain evil. One of the two. You're living in Disneyland. Verse 22. The principle of the stronger of the two is that he overcomes the spoils and spoils the weaker one. Verse 22. It's simple. Look at history. Nation rise against nation. They conquer them. Who? Who wins? The stronger. Simple. And if a nation takes to account the next nation next to it, and it sees that it cannot defend its borders, it doesn't have more armament than it, let me tell you, it's just a matter of time before they're going to cross those borders. If Israel did not have the Iron Dome, every Muslim in the world would be into Israel right now. To kill every Jew. But because Israel is stronger than them. They're held back. Simple. Now we have portrayed our nation as weak. In the last six and a half years. Our economy. Our military. Everything has been weakened and dismantled. And so the nations of the world are flexing their muscles. Russia with Putin. Iran. 
the Muslim Brotherhood, ISIS, they say they're going to hang their flag on the White House. They cut two journalists' heads off. Do you possibly think they think they're stronger than us and we're weak? Let's get it together, Christians. <laughs> Jesus said, go sell your sword. And then at the end of his ministry, he says, now it's time for you to go buy a sword. Because bad times are coming. Look up the words of Jesus. Simple. Now, in this illustration, 21 and 22, Jesus is the stronger, defeating Satan in the wilderness. We already saw that in chapter 4. He will spoil principalities and powers in his death and resurrection as he goes on to Hades in Colossians 2.15, spoiling publicly as a spectacle before all that they could not hold those who had died and he takes them into heaven. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. 1 John 4.4 4 tells us. Notice the concluding truth is that you are either for Jesus or against him. There is no neutral ground or position in verse 23. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Well, I believe Jesus is a good man, a prophet. No, you're against him. If you don't believe that he's God, the Savior of the world... You're against him. You're not for him. No neutral ground. You can be the most moral, ethical person. If you do not believe the gospel, you are against Jesus. No neutral ground. Those are the words of Jesus. The word gather means to assemble, to bring together. Get the word synagogue from it. The word scatters means dispersed or to fly in every direction. And so, the unpardonable sin is attributed to the work of God, attributing the work of God to Satan, his activities sometimes. There's a relationship correlation through all this. Notice in 24 down to 28. The need of accepting Jesus after being delivered from a demon. So this thing keeps going. When an unclean spirit goes out of the man, he goes around dry places seeking rest, finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. So a person who is demon possessed and that demon is exercised, cast out and he leaves. He will come back to try to enter that person again. If it is clean, if it's empty. And when he comes, verse 25 says, his, and then finds it swept and put in order. In other words, that darkness has been expelled, the demon, particularly here. If he comes back and that person has not accepted Jesus and light has come into their body, then that house, that vessel, is open again for being possessed. And with this demon that was in him, 
that was cast out does is that he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits, other demons, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Pretty awesome. Horrible. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen demon possession, but it's no game. You know, in the 60s, we had Linda Blair with the, <laughs> the Exorcist. Now, even as I was in the world, I didn't go see that junkie movie. I didn't go see that. People are attracted to the demon stuff today. You know, and they think it's just entertainment. Okay. Seven times worse. Seven demons, worse than the first one. Notice that Mary Magdalene in Luke 8, 2 tells us that Jesus delivered her from seven demons. Usually the Catholic Church portrays Mary Magdalene as a prostitute. Wrong! You get an F in the study of Bible, Catholic Church. She was delivered from seven demons. Kind of correlates with what Jesus is teaching here, isn't it? Interesting. The condition of the man will be worse than at first when he was possessed. You remember in Matthew 17, 21, the disciples couldn't cast out a demon. And they said, Lord, why could we not do this? And Jesus says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So when you're dealing with demonic possession, it's not just, you know, in the name of Jesus, come out and that's it. And you certainly need to be directed of God and that God be the one that you're looking to and trusting in and he's guiding you. Very important. In verse 27 down to 28, the praise of Mary now uh, for bearing Jesus is uh, uttered out. And it happened as he spoke these things, as he's talking about this demon possession and the power of God and everything out of the crowd, um, as he's speaking these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. And he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. <laughs> a mild reprove and rebuke here. The word blessed is the same word for the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. It means happy, indicating God bestowing grace upon Mary. But we have to be careful here. The mild reproof is that it's more blessed if you obey the word of God. So in other words, because God blessed Mary among women, not above women, Luke one forty two tells us. There's the big distinction there. She was a sinner like anybody else. She needed to repent of her sins like anybody else. It's very, very, very clear. And so Jesus um, confronts this woman, reproving her. Verse 29 down to 32, you have the sign of Jonah given by Jesus. The parallels in Matthew 12. 38 and 42. In verse 29, uh, it says, And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he, 
began to say, This is an evil generation that seeks a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of, the, uh, of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Now, the occasion took place as the crowd is packed tightly, it says here. And they're being packed tightly trying to get closer to hear what he's teaching, what he's saying. And Jesus declares that they were an evil generation. Here you're trying to listen and all of a sudden you listen. You're an evil generation. Jesus didn't mess around. He confronted people. He knew what was in the heart of man. And Jesus states the reason they were asking him for a sign from heaven. Verse 29 goes back to verse 16. That's when they asked for a sign. Jesus denies them any sign to prove who he was, but gives the sign of Jonah, the prophet here. And notice in 30, he stated the sign of Jonah indicating what it meant to the Ninevites. Judgment unless they repent. That was the sign. Jesus makes the application to himself, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. He makes the application there. Now, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 12, 38 and 40, Jesus addresses the scribes and the Pharisees, calling them an evil and adulterous generation. And he points to the three days and three nights that... Um, Jesus would spend, as Jonah spent, three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster or the whale. Luke does not mention this. Luke's focus is upon the sign that Jonah was to the Ninevites. It was a sign of judgment unless they repented. Matthew focuses on the sign of the resurrection. So though they complement one another, they do not contradict one another. And the focus is completely different. In verse 31 to 32, the witness of the Queen of Sheba is mentioned. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. And so the Queen of Sheba recognized the greatness of Solomon. You remember, she says, The half was not told me. The heiress tense means that she heard and appropriated the wisdom of Solomon. She came from Yemen, a long journey, months of travel. These guys have Jesus present in this little land, no bigger than Rhode Island, 150 north to south, about 100, at the most, just 50, 60 miles with sometimes. And yet, They're dissing the wisdom of Jesus, rejecting it. Now, a greater than Solomon is here. To those that much is given, much more is required. The measure of light. You find the passage of the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10, 1 through 13. 
And so Jesus declares himself the greater than Solomon. Now, in verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented in the preaching of Jonah. There's the focus. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. So the generation of the Jews, because they had the greater line, they were rejecting it, not believing it. They would be judged more severe. The witnesses against them, the Queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh. Wow. Pretty heavy. Now, Matthew 12, 41, 42 reverses the order. Um, Nineveh, Nineveh is first, and then the Queen of Sheba comes second. And that's the difference between Matthew and Luke. Now, when you get to verse 33 to 36, you have the peril of the lighted lamp. Um, he says, No one, when he has little lamb, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. Simple principle. We've seen this before in chapter 8, verse 16. A lamp is not to be hidden, but is to be put out so that darkness is dispelled and those can walk in that light. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. The eye is the window of the soul. So we have to be careful what we take in. But Jesus really is dealing with our heart, isn't he? It's where condition is our heart. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. And so we have to make sure that we guard our heart, for from it comes forth the issues of life. I must walk in the Spirit. I must reckon the old man that I must put on the mind of Christ. I must fill with the Spirit of God. I must obey the Word of God. Verse 35 to 36, you have the application of the principle. He says, therefore, conclusion, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. He's talking to believers. Non-believers don't have this light in them. Jesus is the light. The gospel is the light. The work of God through the Holy Spirit is the light. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the brightened Bright shining of a lamb gives you light. The phrase take heed is an imperative command, present active to the believer. In you is emphatic, implying again the heart. The practice of yielding to light will result not partaking in darkness. Our body will be full of light then. Look at the word having there in verse 36. It's a participle present active regarding darkness. It cannot be an ongoing thing if you're a Christian. You cannot be living in darkness continually. It's a contradiction. All things pass away. Everything becomes new. 
And if you're messing with darkness continually as a habit of life, then you're awfully backslidden or you've gone back in the world. One of the two. You tell me which one it is. But when you're walking with Jesus, you remain in the light. And when you sin, you confess your sin, ask forgiveness, and he cleanses you from all sin and your fellowship is restored. But it's the exception. We don't live in sin as the rule. That's what we used to do as non-believers. We don't do that as Christians. We understand we're new creation in Christ Jesus. It will affect your entire person. Listen to Proverbs twenty twenty seven. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. 37 down. To 54, the woes of the Pharisees and the lawyers. This morning we went through it in depth. So we will just go through general commentary. And 37 would be a better division. Again, uh, the divisions of verse and chapter are not always. Uh, they're, well, for the most part, they're, they're very good. Once in a while they can be improved. They're not inspired by the Spirit of God. They were just put in to facilitate finding verses. It says, and he... And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and he sat down. He reclined back as he ate in those days, as in Luke 7, when he went to Simon the Pharisee's house, where the prostitute washed his feet with her tears and washed him with her hair. They reclined back. He says, and when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed his for dinner or before dinner. Now, the implication is not that Jesus just sat down with dirty hands. He probably did wash his hands, but not in the ritualistic, oral, traditional law that they had interpreted the law to. Uh, there are many uh, things that, uh, of hygiene that are given in the law, and certainly God did it for uh, hygienical purposes, even the dietary law. But here he's talking about the oral law, which they had placed, and, you know, the volumes that, that were interpretive of them, and they put the people under bondage. And it's talking about a special ritual, how you pour the water in your hands, the amount you pour them in, and therefore, you know, now you've met the requirement and you're righteous and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. They also believed, some of them, that there was demons that laid on your hands, and if you ate without doing these rituals, the demons would come in you. So you've always here you there you got that a, a person who's a Christian can be demon possessed or a Jew. Again, there's that same old lie, uh, one way or another that it comes up once in a while. Um, he's talking about the burdens that they had brought upon the people through their interpretive loss, and Jesus knew this. That, that's why he did it on purpose. Jesus always he always healed people on the Sabbath. Why? Because they they said that you couldn't heal on the Sabbath day. Jesus went out of his way to show them how wrong they were. That they might see their error. Not just to tick them off. Now I may do that. You may do that. To just provoke them. But Jesus is God. He did it to turn them. Verse 29. Then the Lord said to him. Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Woof. Dinner's not starting out very good. Though he's speaking figuratively, he's talking about the literal person, the Pharisees, their bodies. They were pretentious on the outside. 
as if they were righteous, but inward they were evil, greed, and wickedness. In other words, they were robbing and being evil in character. The widow's houses, the, the tithes, the everything. Matthew 23 speaks about it. Mark 12, the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah chapter 1, Amos chapter 5, and many others. Nothing new. Foolish ones, Jesus says, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Foolish ones means without reason, senseless, without intelligent reflection. When someone doesn't get it, we say he can't connect the dots yet. He hasn't connected the dots. And you go, how can he be so dumb? Easy. Hardness of heart, especially pertaining to the things of God. People think they know more than God. People are so smart, they have explained God away. God doesn't exist. That's it. It's over. God's over. He's gone. Are they going to be surprised when they give their last breath? And they find themselves before the Lord of Lords and King of Kings on Judgment Day. Wow. Verse 41, he says, but rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. So in other words, they desired, God desired that the alms that were given were given because of true pity and compassion from the heart. Um, But they wanted to show this outward ritual ceremonial righteousness while excluding the more important things as he goes on to say. And they felt that because I do these outward things, then God looks upon me as holy, as clean. What self-deception is that? Now, I don't know where you came from, but I was an ex-Catholic. And, um, you know, I, I, I would get in trouble and I... I Make the sign of the cross, man. I know, you know, and you know, and and then you know, when everything was done, I'd go do my thing, or I'm gonna go do something bad, and I I I cross myself, thinking that God's gonna be one with me when I go do that evil. And so I'd be driving down Ballin Park, down Ballin Park Boulevard, you know, and then you got St. John's Church over here, and I got a beer, you know, while I'm driving, and you know, and I'm drinking, and, and all of a sudden I come by the church, and I, I don't drink, and I make the sign of the cross, and I pass the church, and I chug a look, and I just keep going. Well, I was religious, but it never transformed me. There's a big difference, you understand? Um, this is what Jesus is talking about. Uh, these outward things, and you know, and you got your rosary, you got your scapular, and you've got your saints, and you got your Saint Christopher, and you've got your array of things on your dashboard. And if you ever get in a wreck, they're gonna kill you as you get inserted on them. And you're, I mean, it's kind of comical once you're not, once you're born again, and you realize how foolish it was. But when you're religious, you are dead serious. You know, we've all seen enough mafia movies, right? 
They're all good Catholics, right? And they make this on the crowd and then they go kill 10 people, right? And everybody's a whore except for their mom, right? It's just the way they think, right? That's how people in the world think. We're evil. And we try to make God part of us. And we think that he honors that. Man, you think we might be a little off? Verse 42, down to 44, the condemnation of the Pharisees here for a life of duplicity. He says, but woe to you Pharisees, woe is judgment, it's painful judgment. God rather forgive than judge. Pharisees separated ones for you, tithe, mint, and rue, and all the manner of herbs, and you pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So they would do the righteousness of these herbs that they grew in their gardens, and they would say, you know, nine for me and one for the Lord. And they were just real meticulous. They want to make sure God gets his share and everything. And, you know, but then justice and the love of God, they would just... You know, they'd abandon that. They would rip off the widow and lay with women and they would do it. And, you know, he said, now there's nothing wrong with giving to God what you want to and what the law says. But don't forget about the other stuff. You need to make sure you do the other stuff, the more important stuff that God understands. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greeting the marketplace. They love to be honored. They love to be awed. Up in the front with the semicircle chairs and all their doodads on and all that. And when they go to the market, you know, make sure you call me um, Father Xavier or Reverend Xavier or something. Really? Wow. They love attention. People love titles. It's ridiculous. We're all servants of God. God is in control of our life. We serve Him. Verse 44, He says, Well, to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, actors from the theater, the mask of the smile and the frown. They're pretending to be something they're not. Thinking that they can fool God like they fool people. Welcome to humanity. Even we as Christians can fall prey to this at time when we yield to our flesh. And we're like Moses when he killed the Egyptian. He looked this way, looked that way. But he forgot to look up. There's nothing I do, nothing I can think that God doesn't know about. That is such a protection for us. Such a protection. For you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Ooh. Passover season, they take the graves and they whitewash them so that the pilgrims come through, they see them, and they've come for a long journey, and they don't accidentally touch them, become ceremonial and clean, then they can't partake of the Passover. He says, You guys are like these sepulchres. You're dangerous. You're deceptive. And you're polluting people and you don't even know it. You're like these graves. 
But you think you're all righteous? You think God is pleased with you? Now, this principle goes to leadership in the church. Every generation, and I think of men who God has called and anointed and has used tremendously. And then they go from becoming servants to becoming lords to abuse the people of God. And to abuse their authority and power. And to exalt themselves and enrich themselves. God help them. Have they forgotten what they teach? Have they forgotten the Bible that they're supposed to be reading every day? God help us. I certainly am not above this. Nor you. So we have to remember. We have to stay in the word. We have to stay accountable to the Lord. In verse 45 down to 48. You have the indignant interruption here by the lawyer. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him. Teacher. By saying these things, you reproach us also. A lawyer with thin skin. It's pretty hard to believe. And he said, woe to you also, lawyers. <laughs> he probably expected Jesus to say, oh, I'm sorry. And he comes back on him. For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burden with one of your fingers. Lawyers are to defend guilty people. How they rip people off and yet they themselves, because they know the law, can manipulate and exclude themselves from many things. God help them. Amazing. Lawyers that move to politics, that make laws that the people have to obey. There are burdens on the people of the nation, but they are excluded from that. They exclude themselves from it. So you and I get Obamacare. They get private medicine at our expense. Oh, don't you just want to just hug them and thank them? Hmm. 47 says, Woe to you, for you build... The tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. You think you're honoring the prophets? You're honoring your fathers. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed kill them and you build their tombs. You're complicit, you're partners in crime with the, your fathers. Here's the conclusion in verse 49. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles and summon them. They will kill and persecute. In other words, the wisdom of God is that he always send out his messengers to warn the people to turn them from sin. So they had no excuse. As a parent, your wisdom is to give your children very clear, straight instruction. So when they disobey, they have no excuse. You don't warn them, you're a very unwise father and mother. Because they will throw it back in your face. Very simple. 
verse 50 says that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. And so they were responsible. They were partners in crime, as we said. From the foundation of the world, he's going to deal with Abel, who was killed by Cain. Zacharias, in verse 51, the blood of Abel and the blood of Zacharias, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. And so in Second Chronicles 24, 20-22, Zacharias was stoned between uh, in the court there, between the altar, because he spoke against the idolatry of Joash. The Hebrew Bible is a little different order. The first book, Genesis, came and Abel, and then at the end, here's Zacharias. So all the persecution that was brought to the prophets, God sent them all day long. They persecuted, they ran them out, they, they killed them. Verse 52 says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered the key of knowledge here in verse 52. Speaks of understanding of the word of God and the way of salvation that is very clear in the Old Testament. Because all they had at this time was the Old Testament. They had confounded God's word by their interpretations. They had laid heavy burdens on them. They had deviated those who were entering heaven and saying, no, no, you've got to do it our way. And by the time they got done to make disciples, they ended up making them more twice the child of the devil. Jesus said, wow, what judgment. Jesus says, if you stumble one of these little ones, it would be better for you to tie a stone around your neck and be cast into the sea and drown. Wow. I think of the professors in universities of America. I think of Bill Maher. And all these comedians and liberals who mock God and Christians who turn people's faith that are young in the Lord. What judgment. Verse 53 says here, And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently, in other words, horribly and violently, and to cross-examine him, to bombard him, to ambush him, with many words, as many people talking at the same time about many things. They were upset. The tension is higher than ever. The animosity against Jesus is growing as he moves down to Jerusalem. Verse 54 says, Lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something, he might say that they might accuse him. Wow. Nothing has ever changed. As the gospel has gone forth, wherever it may be, in America or Mexico or China, people will accept or reject. You cannot be neutral with Jesus Christ. You're either for me or against me, he said. And so people can try to point to their goodness, their works, 
or their opinions, but they hold no water when it comes to the words of Jesus. He is the only name. He is the only way. He is the only mediator. And he signed it in blood. And he does not bargain in that aspect. It's his way. No other way. Because it has to be through the atonement for sin. And only the blood of Jesus Christ can forgive sin. Nobody else can do that. Thank God Jesus Christ made a way. He didn't have to. He wasn't forced to come. He chose to come because he loved us. How good he is. Father, thank you for your goodness and love. Thank you for tonight. And we pray that you would continue to deal with our hearts. We just thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Pray for every person here. Your hand be upon us. Lord, there's anyone who doesn't know you. We pray that you would just minister their heart, your grace, your love, that they would call on your name. As we're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins, to be born again, that you might receive eternal life from Jesus Christ. Maybe you're over the internet. You can do it right where you sit. This is your prayer to him, not to us. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, and that he is the Savior of the world, you can call upon his name. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's called repentance. So if you want to be born again, this is your prayer to the Lord if you want to repeat it. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord. For all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.